Welcome to the Vocational Education Podcast. Here's your host, Dr. Dan. My guest today is no stranger to the world of vocational education and training. Lauren has had over a decade of experience, well over a decade of experience, if she can allow me to say that, in the uh, in the industry. And most recently, she's uh, taken what I would call a, a nice idea on the side into a, a fantastic business called Understand TAE. Before we even start, Lauren, please tell me a little bit about how your passion became your business. Um, look, I think it, it happened like it happens with many other people. So I actually started the Understand TAE website about uh, four years ago, and I started it as a free resource for trainers to just um, be able to ask questions and get some information and just put some easy graphics up there to help them kind of understand some of the basic principles of VET, um, you know, the standards or the principles of assessment, rules of evidence. And over the years, I've been doing mentoring uh, to more and more new trainers entering into the sector and, you know, helping them with some of the more difficult problems that they get when they don't know what to say to an employer or, or how to... Um, you know, make a decision in the best interest of a student. And last, I think in, no, I'm sorry, not last, it was the year before that, um, between 2015 and 2016, I was with Ashley Services Group and we had, uh, we had six RTOs, we had every state funding contract you can imagine. Um, and I think that over the course of the year, we sat through about 60 audits and the auditors continually, um, you know, they, they, the interpretations continue to change and worked with more and more clients. We continue to see the same things happening. And that was that, you know, professional development definitely does happen in RTOs, but similar to how we do our industry currency and things like that, it doesn't get well documented. So what, um, what we started to do is we started to look at ways whereby when we were hiring staff, um, you know, how could we actually make sure that this, the cert four that they had, that they really did have the knowledge and skills. Mm. And it kind of just grew out of that because they're, you know, at the moment and, and historically there's kind of been this, you know, do you have the TAE? If you do, then yes, you're good to go and we've ticked the box. But they don't really understand, you know, the different um, knowledge and skills that our trainers actually come with. And, and it, it is very, very different. You get trainers who have been involved in literally nothing but training um, you know, and so their experiences are very limited and you get other trainers who worked, you know, they've done, they've run audits or they've been an operations manager or they've had, you know, a lot more exposure to curriculum development and things like that. And therefore their knowledge and skills are very different. So the training we need to provide to those different types of trainers is quite unique, mm. just as the training that we provide to every one of our students is, is quite unique so we, it, was, it was a very basic concept that you know there was nobody out there that was actually treating trainers um, in the same way and with the same sort of you know respect that we treat our students. I've noticed that uh, you frequent a lot of the larger events around the country whether it's um, Valgan sources these sorts of places uh, and you're, you're a guest speaker often you would meet a lot of people in the vocational education sector what are some of the main concerns that they are sharing with you at the moment? Um, look, I, I think that two, I think there's probably three key areas. Um, I think the first one is, is that they really are still struggling to get the practical assessment components right. 
Um, assessment continues to be, you know, 80% non-compliant first time round at ASQA audit. And the interpretations have changed so much since even two, three years ago. Um, understanding how we go about evidencing, it's not its not so much about actually the design and, and practicing it and, and assessing, it's how we actually are going about evidencing those practical assessments. So there's still a lot of concern in and around how that happens. Um, definitely trainer currency. So there's lots of discussions happening between industry bodies and the regulators and state departments on how we manage our trainers. There's a growing recognition that, you know, the quality of your training and assessment is determined by the quality of your trainers and assessors. Mm. And, you know, yes, we've got this qualification, but I think there's an industry recognition that there's been some major issues with that qualification in the past. And we really need to invest in making sure that the trainers have the skills and knowledge not just to be able to really engage our students, but also to be able to interpret those competency standards and make sure that at the end of the day, the assessment is meeting the standards. Um, and then I think probably the third area is just a general, um, I guess, concern and, and, and hope that we would like to start seeing some more um, harmonisation across the state's funding contracts, certainly for larger RTOs that run in between multiple states. Mm. Um, it's, it's so complicated to be able to get, you know, a clear, um, you know, process forward if you're running more than one or two states. They all require different things. They require different evidence. You know, Queensland, as an example, requires you to keep every single piece of paper, be that from enrolment to the assessment to the issuance of the qualification to the training plans for seven full years. Um, that's a huge burden for RTOs to have to be able to logistically manage. So a little bit more harmonisation across that would uh, certainly allow RTOs to be a little bit more forward planning. But unfortunately, you know, if state funding contracts and um, funding priorities change every single year, it is very hard to be a proactive business when you cannot, you know, set a business plan for more than 12 months without, you know, being afraid that it's going to be flipped on your head. Or, or just taken away from you, hence the TEA recently. Yeah, <laughs> um, exactly. Yeah, I don't even go there with that one. That's that's a personal experience that I will just share later. Now, um, just if I can delve deeper into those three areas, because um, any one of those is uh, you know something we could talk about for hours. But uh, one of the things, you, the last one you mentioned was harmonisation, so some sort of consistency across the state regulators and regulations and requirements. How on earth can someone working in an RTO today even start to think about how that could happen? <laughs> there you go. How, how on earth could they start it? And look, and I think that the regulators and the state funding bodies are sitting in the same position um, and they're going, how the hell do we make this happen? Um, you know, when I speak to a lot of the regulators and the state funding bodies, they're, they're not out there to make it difficult for RTOs, um, but they're also very, particularly in light of what happened with Vet Fee Help, there is a very high reluctance to to hand over control to the federal department because obviously the last time that it happened and we start looking at how we put together all this federal funding, the states didn't have a voice. Mm. Um, and, and, and like, let's be honest, it went really wrong. 
So I think that that there is some genuine concerns on on all sides. Um, there's also the recognition that different states do have different priorities. I mean, here in WA, we are a very large state. We're a very diverse state. And so what the training that we need up in the Kimberleys is very different from the training that we need down here in the metropolitan area. Um, you know, in Sydney, you, you know, they, they face similar challenges in that, you know, the training that we need in the main area is very different than the training that we need in the other area, uh, it, you know, out in, in rural, rural areas. areas. Yeah, yeah. So, and this is where, you know, again, um, there is such a, uh, such a crucial role for both private and public providers to play a role in that because, you know, our public providers do have far more facilities. Um, they are generally the ones that are out in some of those more rural areas working with some of the more difficult groups. Um, but there's also a recognition that with some of those more technical qualifications or the qualifications that are consistently updating and need somebody who's really industry savvy, private providers have done that historically very, very well. Yeah. Um, now, and, can, you know, private... Sorry, can I just butt in for a second there? I, I just um, – there, there is that – anomaly, if you like, that the private providers do uh, exist beyond the state borders where the public providers do not. I mean, there are TAFEs in every state. However, there's um, there's no TAFE that is an Australian-wide TAFE. Um, that, to me, I guess, raises a bit of an issue about that harmonisation. If the government or the public-funded state-based education systems can't do it, then it really is up to the private providers. Is that what you you think? Look, I think that there needs to be recognition that it's going to take everyone working together. Um, you know, the whole public-private higher education vet debate takes so much away because, unfortunately, the debate ends up being focused on how can I take the other guy down as opposed to how can we work together to get a really good outcome, um, you know. So, yeah, no, I agree. The sad part is, is that it, on a small level, it, it has worked very well. There's some... There's some tastes out there that actually do a you know huge amount of work with with private providers, and they set up these relationships where they go, look, you know, we know that you guys are really good at working with the industry side of it, and so we'll put a partnership together and we create this great program. Um, same with the higher education and vet. There's been some really fantastic examples where they've worked together and just created these incredible programs and gotten these wonderful outcomes for students. Mm. Um, but they're not publicised. I mean, they're not. You know, the the good feel stories are not the ones that get the front lines in the Australian, unfortunately. No, um, no. And I think that we really do need to get, we're getting to a point where the, the governments need to step forward. They need to stop saying higher education versus um, that. They need to stop saying public versus private. And they need to say, look, we need to fund getting the right outcomes for our students. And that means that, you know, on two levels, one, we've got to we've got to work with the states and we've got to work with the privates and the public to identify where those areas are that need the most money and how that could be best distributed. And then on a second level, we then need to be able to fund the regulators so that they can, um, you know, so that they can regulate that effectively. And states have been far more effective in regulating how their funds have been spent. So I think that, that the federal government does need to be very open in and around how the states have successfully managed that. Mm. Um, you know, certainly WA, 
Um, you know, Queensland have got great relationships with their providers. The way that they approach having a relationship with an RTO is really uh, positive. New South Wales is pretty good with that as well. Um, Victoria is a little bit more adversarial, uh, which is which is a shame because they don't get to set up those relationships. But there's some weird that they are very effective at. Um, from a regulation perspective at making sure that, you know, all of the providers are heavily regulated. So, mm, mm. you know, all of the skills and knowledge are sitting there. It's really just facilitating getting those conversations happening yeah. um, between all of the relevant parties. And, and unfortunately, you know, the government and ACPET and, you know, and VELG, uh, they need to take up these roles and really push forward and say, you know, we want you guys to have these conversations. We want to facilitate the discussions. We understand that there is a place, you know, in in education for everyone. And we all come with different strengths and weaknesses. And if we can work together, we can produce something really incredible and get these great outcomes for industry and for individuals. Yeah, I guess the workplace health and safety, uh, I'm going to call it a sector, even though it's not a sector, but uh, we were able to harmonise the legislation across the states uh, a few years back. So I, I guess the um, the precedent has been set where we can do that. Uh, but you said, you know, there's a lot of fingers in the pie, a lot from um, private uh, industry bodies to um, public industry bodies to government to, you know, all sorts of people wanting their, their share. And if we can work together, yeah, I can see one day um, potentially an Australia-wide harmonisation of, of what we see as requirements for training organisations and also what we see as requirements for trainers, which brings me to my next uh, point, which was um, you, you mentioned currency uh, as one of the big topics that comes out of um, your discussions at, the, at these events. Uh, when it comes to trainer currency, uh, if we look back at, say, some of the um, the larger industry groups, say, resources, aged care, these sorts of groups, uh, what sort of role do you think uh, online or, or um, artificial intelligence <laughs> plays, there you go, throw that one out there, in the role of training people so they're provided some sort of consistency as opposed to worrying about the currency of any one particular trainer? Ah, oh, okay. AI in training. I was not prepared for that one. Oh. Um, okay, well, look, in relation to currency um, and online, look, I, I think that online plays a, a, a really strong role. I mean, I have been incredibly inspired by some of the TED Talks that I've seen. I've, I've regularly, you know, my, my commute into work, is listening to you know Tony Robbins or Tim Ferriss or, or Sir Ken Robinson doing podcasts and getting ideas from different entrepreneurs. So I, I think that you know um, the internet and online is is an incredible resource that we we should be using effectively. And you know when I see online training and I log in and, and I see that it's really just. Um, you know, it's the resources that have been put on, you know, like it's a book that's been put online and then yeah. there's some questions. That is not online training to me. Um, you know, online training is is basically it's an online classroom, you know, it's online mentoring. Um, so, you know, I, I think that there still needs to be that interaction. One of the goals of, of any educational institution needs to be to spark curiosity 
in our learners, um, to prompt them to ask why, to explore, uh, you know, to take those tangents and, you know, build that capacity to really engage with the curriculum. And at this point in time, I don't believe that AI is sophisticated enough to be able to do that. Um, there may well be a time, you know, when my when my children are, are in their thirties, um, that that we've got the capacity to do that. But I believe that at the heart of education is creating this aha moment um, and making a difference in an individual. And I believe that that requires human interaction, and it requires being able to have a conversation. And as I said, spark that curiosity and pick up on that moment where you can see the students kind of on the edge and go, right, what about if we do this? And then they go, oh, right, okay, yeah, I get it now. That requires people. So, um, you know, I, I, I think online is amazing and I think that, you know, you can have that moment um, just as easily online or on the phone as you can doing it in person and, and different people respond differently to those mediums. Um, but, you know, I think at the end of the day, what people get wrong when they talk about online training is they they take the human element out of it, they take the interaction out of it and they take the connection out of it. And without those things, you cannot spark the the engagement with the student that you need to. Following on from that then, some of the skills that you might see as absolutely pertinent to the best trainer. So if you could, um, I guess, paint a picture of the, the ultimate trainer slash facilitator on the wall, what would he or she look like? Um, okay, the, the best trainers and facilitators. So for one, they're passionate about, they're, they are equally passionate about their industry as they are about education. Um, so I believe that that passion is important because it's what it's what infects the learners um so somebody who who really who gets up in the morning and actually really loves their industry and really loves training and that's a really hard thing to find generally people tend to skew like more one way or the other yes. um i think that they they need to be lifelong learners themselves um I, there is nothing sadder than talking with you know trainers um, and educators that just go, no, I don't really, you know, like I know it all, you know, <laughs> I don't just go, no, no one knows it all. Like that's the, that is the brilliance of our world is, is that there's always something new to learn and there's always a way to grow and there's always a way to do something differently. Um, so I think that they need to have, a, you know, a natural curiosity within themselves. And I think that they need to be open to listening to other people Um to listen to that, to, to be open to the ideas of their students, to be, you know, um, to, to be structured enough that they understand that there needs to be a structure and a flow and a sequence, but also that they are flexible and confident enough with their materials that they are okay taking a few steps down the beaten path in order to allow the students to kind of explore a pathway of their own. Hmm. So to summarise, because I love those, by the way, that they all just hit the nail on the head for me. Um, passion for both industry and education, tick. Uh, lifelong learners, absolutely. Uh, the last one of allowing students to explore their ideas, That's um, that's been something, I know you, just, you mentioned Sir Ken Robinson before, it's something he uh, espoused many years ago, but it's one of those things that we don't see a lot of in classrooms. We have 
a lot of trainers, this probably is what you're getting at there. There's a lot of trainers who might sit there and say, well, this is my session plan. I've got to get through this and then I've got to go home. Uh, you know, yeah. and look, and 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 as and as regulation increases, like you know, if you're working within, um, you know, the the larger the organisation that you work in, sometimes that can be even more dictatorial. Mm. Um, you know, or the more that you've got to pack in, you know, like if you've got to teach, if, if you've got, you know, if, if you've got to teach thirty units in forty days, um, you know, that doesn't leave a huge amount of time for going down those beaten paths. No. So, you know, depending on how the RTO designs it, depending on how the qualification is funded, there's a whole range of reasons as to why that occurs. And and I completely understand that. Like, we, at the end of the day, we also have to make profit because if we don't make profit, then, you know, we can't afford to have those people there and we can't get the outcomes that we need. Like, there there needs to be a balance at all times. But, um, you know, I think that as we've become more and more regulated, RTOs have responded by going, right, we need to dummy-proof everything. We need to have, um, you know, this policy and this policy, and this is the form that gets documented at all times, rather than going, right, let's train up our staff so that they understand what the standards are, they understand what the requirements are, and then let's trust them to, you know be able to meet those standards, you know, we, we go down this method of going, right, we're going to dummy proof everything rather than actually training our staff and developing a corporate culture that makes staff want to make the right decisions, you know? So, and I, and I think that that's really probably one of the sadder parts of what's come out of all of this regulation in vet is, is that, you know, we, we don't, the larger our organizations get, we don't trust our trainers anymore. And, you know, as I said, the quality quality of training assessment is dictated by the quality of the trainer and assessor. If you can't trust them and give them a little bit of faith to do the right thing, you know, most trainers got into this industry because they want to make a difference. They want to do the right thing by the students. They want to help and, you know, and help them have that aha moment. And unfortunately, if we turn around and go, yeah, but I don't trust you because you've got a TAE and therefore you know nothing, then, you know we're really setting a rod for our own back. Mm. I remember teaching the TAA 12, 13 years ago and um, saying to my students at the time, uh, you're asking them, you know, why do they want to do this course? And the majority, if not all, but definitely the majority wanted to do it because they were at a transition point in their lives where they um, thought they knew their subject or their, their um, industry so well, and they now wanted to share it and they wanted to like, put their tools down, so to speak, and share all their wisdom with somebody. And that's such a higher order of calling. And, um, and I definitely got respect for the students who took it on that way, uh, as opposed to those who just saw it as a, a tick and flick, I need this because my boss said. Um, Absolutely. And, and it did have a, a very profound impact on myself, so much so that that's, I've dedicated my life to that as well. Uh, so I guess... One of the things I'd like to uh, just probably end with, Lauren, is the old magical um, three wishes. <laughs> I'd love to give you, as a genie right now, you three wishes to uh, f- wave your wand across Australia and say these three things will now come into effect immediately. What would they be and what would the impact be on Australian vocational education? Oh, okay. All right. Um, all right. So three wishes for that. Okay. So um, 
my first one would be that every um, every RTO would have to invest in in developing their all of their staff. So every staff member working within vocational education and training would have to undertake a minimum of 20 or 30 hours of professional development a year. Um, I think that that would, you know, as I said, we are an education industry. If we don't lead the way in educating our staff, then, you know, there's, you know, a huge amount of money there. Yes, so yeah. I, um, that would definitely be one thing. Is is not just to say they've got to be competent or current, but actually to say, you know, you actually need to invest in them and you need to put so many hours in, um, uh, you know, to, to 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 build that to build their capacity. Um, I second. I would um, I would definitely force the state somehow to. Um, set up a national funding agreement that um, distributed money through the states, but the actual requirements of how the eligibility was determined, how the um, enrolment was processed, how the training plan had to look and the documentation surrounding it was um, provided to RTOs. Um, there's a huge amount of time that gets wasted redeveloping forms every year to make sure the enrolment form has the right questions on it, that your evidence mm. eligibility the same, that the fees, you know, are the same and everything like that. So I would actually keep or I, I would harmonise those sorts of things and just provide really simple tools um, that allowed, you know, all of the RTOs, whether you were in WA or Victoria, whether you were signing up an apprentice or signing up a job seeker, um, or signing up somebody fee for service that they would fill out all the same questions, um, you know, all of the fees were the same across the states and everything like that, and it would pay the same across all of the states because that is a huge, like, there's a lot of time spent making sure that all of those requirements are met between different RTOs, and if you've got one clear process that everybody follows, mm-hmm. then that means that, you know, you you can spend more time focusing on the important things rather than, having to check that sort of stuff. Um, and then I think the third one would be, um, I guess, to, to, to uh, erase everyone's memories, <laughs> all the bad memories from the last yeah. three years, um, and really, uh, you know, make the media put out those good news stories. We've had all of our Australian Training Awards winners. When you read the stories about the winners for 2017, be it the teachers or the students, when you speak to our Australian traineeship, apprenticeship ambassadors, the stories that come out of that are stories of hope. They are stories of joy. They are stories of passion. Um, they are stories that, you know, of how their lives were changed through, you know, through the education opportunities that they received. And um, I think that that is the narrative of that that should be out there. It's the narrative of that that brings incredible educators in. It's the narrative of that that, you know, brings, um, you know, brings the right business owners in. And I think that that is the narrative that, that when people look at, you know, do I want my child to go and study at TAFE? Do I want my child to go and study VET? Yes, I absolutely do because you hear so many stories about it just changing people's lives and putting them on such a positive path that I want that opportunity for my child. Mm. That that would be kind of what I would love to see out there. 
Well, Lauren, you've got such a, a positive attitude, not just towards VET, but education in general. And, and also the people. You've obviously got a real belief in the people in the system that they can um, make the changes necessary to just keep improving the system and, and having better results for, as you said, your children growing up and, and uh, all the kids in Australia going into the VET system or even the adults uh, going back to, to learn a trade in their 40s and these sorts of things. And, and that passion really shows through not just in um, – the, the the vibe of the way you talk, but the words, I mean, they're very intelligent words about where we can go forward. And uh, and I hope the listeners take on some of this. And if they've got any questions, of course, they can uh, email me and we can pass them on and, uh, and start a discussion. And of course, uh, Lauren, if anybody wants to uh, speak with you directly, how would they do that? Uh, so if you want to speak with us directly, you can call us on 1300-2-DEVELOP. Um, that will either go to my mobile or the mobile of my partner, Wayne Backman, who's my business partner, um, or you can contact us through our website, www.understandtae, and my email is lauren at understandtae.com. Fantastic. Well, thank you again so much for your time, Lauren. It's great to have people like you as ambassadors in this industry, and uh, we will definitely follow your progress on LinkedIn and other forums. So um, well done, thank and we'll see you, you somewhere so else. Thank you so much, Dan, for having us. You have a great day. You too. All the best, Lauren. Bye. For show notes and more information, follow the links in the podcast or go to danhill.com.au.